You're listening to McBee Care Threads, a podcast where leaders across the healthcare industry can learn from each other. We'll discuss stories and explore strategies to help providers deliver value-based care and hear your peers share their best practices for success. Let's get into the show. Hello and welcome everyone to the McBee Care Threads podcast. My name is Maria Warren and I'm a vice president here at McBee. Our guest today is Corey Mertz, who's the managing director at Mertz Taggart. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the current merger and acquisition landscape, Q2 activity deals um, that were happening and going on this past quarter, and predictions on the merger and acquisition activity for the rest of the year. So let's get started. Corey, thanks so much for joining me on today's podcast. Why don't you start off by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about your background in Mertz Taggart? Sure. Thanks for having me, Maria. Uh, Grateful to be here. Uh, so Mertz Taggart is a, is a healthcare services, mergers and acquisitions advisory firm. We focus in the lower middle market. Uh, we, we typically represent owners and sellers of healthcare services companies, uh, but we're really hyper-focused on two verticals within healthcare services. Uh, the first is home-based care, uh, which I head up is, is our home-based care vertical. So that includes home health, home care, hospice, and even now advanced care at home or hospital at home, sniff at home. I mean, whatever you might want to call it, uh, all, all care at home or home-based care. And then my partner, Kevin, heads up our behavioral health uh, division. So we, we work with a lot of addiction and eating disorder treatment centers, mental health uh, services companies, uh, autism services companies. Uh, and between those two verticals, our team has, has completed right around 135 transactions uh, over the years, really going back to 2006. Wow, that, that's noteworthy um, and monumentous, the number of transactions and providers that you have supported across all healthcare sectors and, and helping them um, it, be sold and finding proper acquirers for them and good fits and, and making, I would say, a, a match made in heaven um, as, as we continue to uh, think about all the white space that's out there in the market and as continuous reimbursement challenges, regulatory challenges, and the landscape keeps changing as well as everyone's looking to build out that full cross continuum. Um, It's great to have your firm be a part of so many of those deals and helping to further shape the healthcare landscape. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I I mentioned since I've been at it since the, uh, the late 2000s, I guess 2006 specifically, and the one consistent thing in, in healthcare services is change. I mean, it's it's always changing, um, and uh, it makes it it makes it interesting, uh, and it's always fun and interesting to work with owners of these agencies because they've all been you know they've all been through a lot over the years and and have remained resilient, and and those companies tend to be attractive. Right. Absolutely. I mean, especially within the past three years and everything that has changed um, the the healthcare landscape and care delivery and the challenges with COVID and staffing and reimbursement challenges. There's and that's just to to name a few. And that's one thing that the healthcare industry, as well as those, especially in um, the home based care, have just been absolutely resilient and ever agile to molding and shaping to the changes and persevering and rising above it all. Absolutely. I agree. 
mergers and acquisitions is one of my, my favorite topics. Um, you know that, and I, I always love hearing, you know, your thoughts and perspectives about, you know, what's going on in the industry, what's happening in the market. Um, as you know, there's, uh, there's no sleep for the weary when you're involved in a transaction, uh, on your end, the seller's end, uh, the buyer's end, so much diligence activity. Um, but there's so much prep that happens before that, um, in, in preparing for a sale. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, at a macro level and share with the listeners, you know, why have valuations, you know, in the lower middle market healthcare services companies remain so strong? You know, what have really been the drivers behind it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and you know, you mentioned lower middle market and, and that's that is a, a key distinction, you know, and at that end of the market, which is where we typically transact. The valuations remain historically high um, and, and to be a little bit more granular about lower middle market, we're really talking about the, the, the healthcare services companies or the home based care agencies in this case that have uh, EBITDA of somewhere between 500,000 and, and say 10 million. Uh, EBITDA is really short for adjusted EBITDA, which is kind of proxy for cash flow uh, from a buyer's perspective, normalized cash flow and with strong clinical programs. Uh, and that end of the market, uh, 500,000 to 10 million in EBITDA, uh, valuations remain really historically high. Um, and there's really two, two main current drivers of that, you know, beyond overall industry growth and, and value-based care, which would be a whole other episode. Um, you know, number one is supply, right? So there's just a scarcity of quality companies on the market right now. Um, you know, you may recall we had a bubble of activity. Well, you were in the middle of it, uh, you know, of, of exits and sales and M&A activity in, in 2021, really the end of 2020 throughout 2021 and, and the early part of 2022. And that was driven by two things, really, at that point in time. Uh, number one, COVID burnout. You know, a lot of owners uh, were getting bombarded with offers that were really strong and, and uh, they were feeling the pressure of, of COVID uh, and, and were ready to get out. Uh, and then number two was the threat of the capital gains tax rate going from 20 percent to 40 percent, uh, which was originally proposed by the and I'm not getting political here by the Biden administration. It was on their on their agenda. Uh, it was it was a, a real threat to. Uh, for owners looking at a, at a you know, near-term exit, uh, if they could get out while the capital gains tax rate was still 20%, then they wanted to take advantage of that opportunity rather than wait for the rates to go up to 40%, then they'd, then they'd have to work another year or two just to get recoup that money. So they got out then, created a big bubble, uh, and but that's left today a, a real scarcity of, of quality agencies in this case uh, on the market. And I think, you know, if you talk to any of the buyers or private equity groups out there, they, they will tell you the same thing. Um, so that's on the supply side. I said, there's two main drivers. That's the supply side on the demand side. You know, right now, private equity demand for home-based care companies is, is insatiable, is insatiable, excuse me. Um, you may remember Maria or some of you that are, are close to the industry you know, going back to 2019, 2020, when private equity group uh, initially crossed that $1 trillion in dry powder, right? Uh, and dry powder is basically just the, the term that they use for capital available 
to invest, right, from, from their funds through their limited partners. So they had a trillion dollars in dry powder to invest. And then we had all this activity in 2021, 2022. If you look at the current private equity dry powder today, after all of that activity, it's still right around a trillion dollars. So they still have a ton of money that they need to invest. The issue that private equity has right now with their portfolio companies is that now on the higher end of the market, Let's talk about transactions that are, let's just say, north of $100 million in enterprise value, north of a billion dollars in enterprise value. Those companies, those portfolio companies, think of an Accent Care, right? They're, they're one of the biggest, right? Or Brightspring, one of, you know, both multi-billion dollar companies owned by private equity. And I'm just using them as, as hypothetical examples. I don't know what their plans were, but if they had planned on our help at home, if they had planned on selling in 2020 two or 23, they've since then decided to hold off. They can't exit because they can't get the values at the higher end of the market that you're still seeing, relatively speaking, at the lower end of the market. So they need to double down. They need to continue to grow. That's their mandate. If they're not growing, they're really falling behind from an investment perspective. So they need to continue to grow. And the best way for them to do that is by doing, continue to do add-on acquisitions. Those add-on acquisitions typically you know, are in the 500000 to $10 million in EBITDA range. So those are the two main drivers of, of what's, um, you know, what's, what's really driving the demand in, in the lower middle market right now. Yeah, th- thank you for sharing that. And, it, and it's, I, I think oftentimes everybody thinks that um, merger and acquisitions, that it's all, always there, it's always happening, which it is, but you hit these roadblocks, um, so to speak, of, you know, f- you don't want to just buy anything. Um, you have to make sure that it's a right fit, not only for your market or for the culture of your organization, um, or it's if you're even thinking about diversifying your services and expanding if you're in home health, your hospice footprint, or if you're in hospice, your palliative footprint, whatever it may be, that there's so many things that you have to think about to strategically position yourself. So then you can get those high valuations from it um, when you're looking to flip down the road. Um, but also thinking about then those private equity groups that have entered, you know, we've also talked about um, th- their holding pattern of now what do I do and wh- when's the right time for me to take this platform that I, I took and I grew and add on, whether it's um, through acquisition or through organic growth and getting it to a place um, and then continuing to work the market and those that are still out there that uh, may be privately owned, still holding their ground and saying, I don't know if it's time yet and and evaluating when's the right time for them to exit and how are they making sure that they're getting the right value for their company or or the number that they think that they should get for their company, um, which which makes it very challenging that uh, it, it's a it's a true hunter's game to to go out there and, and to work it and to to find um, those that are ready, as well as then finding the right buyer for them. And, you know, and the, the capital gains um, tax changes and everything that certainly led um, to, for, to a flurry of activity, as well as then a pause um, to say, well, when is it happening? Is it happening? It, it, do I transact now or, do, or later? Um, so, so much activity has gone to that, but still kept uh, the market strong, so to speak, and in flurry of activity. 
Yeah, a lot, a lot of change for sure, you know, across the, across the continuum uh, in, in different ways. And I'm sure we'll talk, you know, a little bit more about some of those specifically. But um, yeah, it, it, it makes for an interesting, uh, makes, makes for an interesting job, an interesting, in, interesting industry to be in. I will add, you know, on those add-on acquisitions that I, that I talk about, one of the, one of the other reasons those valuations have remained kind of where they have, you know, versus the, the higher end of the market where the, the values have come down a little bit is those transactions tend to not have, you know, as much leverage on them. Right. And, and we know that, that, Debt has gotten more expensive, um, and as a result of that, you know, interest, uh, you know, what you're paying in, in debt service is going to go up on a transaction, especially one that's highly leveraged. And those bigger transactions at the higher end of the market tend to be very highly leveraged. Those at the lower end of the market tend to not be highly leveraged at all, uh, if, if at all, uh, in some cases, depending on the size of the company and the size of the target. No, that, that that's helpful when you when breaking it down into wh- where everything fits um, from an, an exit strategy and and the, those add-ons and how how that compares, you know, from evaluations. Um, you know, one thing that I know um, your firm always puts together and does a great job putting out there is you know the summary update on Q two, and I know that yours now is hot off the press on um, the merger and acquisition activity. Can you walk through and you know I know. I know it's always tough without having um, numbers and details and you got um, some uh, graphs and things that um, highlight in there, but walk us through um, wh- what went on in Q2. How did that compare to Q1 um, related to deal activity across the various sectors? Yeah, so the the Q2 home base care M&A report is, uh, we'll, we'll go live on the website here pretty shortly. Um, but uh, yeah, looking forward to kind of sharing a high level summary of, of what, what you're going to see. Um, and it was a good quarter. It was a it was a strong quarter in terms of activity. Um, so you may recall in, in the first quarter, we had a record low, uh, record low number of, of M&A transactions that we picked up on uh, in the first quarter. It was we picked up on 17 transactions was the final number. It may have originally been 14, now it's 17, because some deals kind of trickle in a little bit later over time. Uh, so so 17 uh, in the first quarter. The second quarter right now, that number is at 29, um, you know, and, and which is really encouraging. Uh, we didn't, I did not expect to see a number uh, that high, to be honest. Uh, and it's fairly evenly spread across the home health, home care hospice uh, part of, of the continuum. Um, on the home health side, we saw 16 transactions. Home care, we saw 11 transactions. And hospice, we saw 13 transactions. Now, if you're paying attention, you may be saying, well, wait a minute, 16 plus 11 plus 13, that's more than 29 transactions. And you're absolutely right, it is. Um, but, but many of these transactions, in fact, we're seeing more of them now, I think, than ever, uh, that have mo- more than one service line. Right. Uh, they have both home health and hospice or, or all three in some cases. So really strong second quarter uh, relative to the first quarter. Uh, we're, we're optimistic um, uh, on, on that front. And of course, demand, you know, again, remains remains very high. 
the most most notable transaction, uh, I think, has to be the uh, the Ameticis, uh transaction or transactions. Uh, although the deal hasn't even hasn't closed yet, so they don't show up in the numbers per se. But it is uh, an interesting transaction that is you know mostly secured. Um, and so that's that's the latest Optum bid for Ameticis. And it's, it's a perfect example of, of a transaction that has really actually three three service lines, home health hospice. They no longer really have home care, but they have hospital at home. Um, so, you know, Optum bid three point three billion, which puts the value right at about three point seven billion. If you include the assumption of debt. Now, my guess is Optum would have, as you recall, they, they just closed on the LHC transaction. They probably would have and could have paid more if they felt like they had to, uh, but they didn't have to because they knew what the price and terms were for the Ameticis option care deal. You know, they had to factor in $106 million price tag to, to terminate the transaction, um, but, but they basically knew you know, where they had to be. So that was certainly uh, that was the most notable uh, of the transactions there. And there were some other nice, you know, nice transactions that occurred as well. Yeah, that one definitely caught the industry by storm and uh, tons of uh, activity and uh, press on on that just being how how large it is. Um, Nobody was ready for that. Then, you know, thought it was all going one way and then, you know, quick flip um, going uh, to the to the way of Optum. Uh, So that's definitely going to be one that everyone will continue to keep their eyes on as it continues to work through the cycle and uh, nears final finalization um, as it, and obviously will certainly uh, be a big pull in the numbers. Yep, for sure. I agree. So one of the other um, things that we talked a little bit about was the various um, challenges. You know, you you recapped it in the beginning on, um, you know, getting into the rising interest rates and scarcity of quality providers, declining of PE exits. What what are some of the other um, big headwinds or tailwinds that you see impacting the M&A landscape um, that our our listeners should be wary of, um, whether they're looking to buy or sell? Yeah, I, I realize I've probably painted a, a pretty rosy picture so far, which is you know, which is common for a, a sell side advisor. But uh, in, in fairness, you know, there there are some some headwinds. Um, first and foremost, you know, you've mentioned it; it's been all over the news. You know, we've had had bank failures, uh, rising interest rates. You know, over the last year and a half, uh, which has has definitely impacted M and A uh, at, at a broader level. We talk about uh, the upper end of the market, uh, but even at the at the lower middle market, um, you know where we tep- typically transact. I, I will say, because of rising interest rates uh, and increased bank scrutiny and increased debt service costs, um, buyers have gotten much more disciplined uh, in a number of ways. You know, so so most have have kind of narrowed their their focus on on what they'll consider acquiring. Uh, for example, and I'm just making something up right now. If you know, if if a buyer was just look, you know, looking for home health and hospice in, in a number of metro areas, you know, they they might now just be looking to add hospice to the home health in those metro areas, and they're not necessarily looking at home health. That's just just a 
hypothetical example, but they've gotten more disciplined. They've narrowed their focus on, on what they'll consider. Uh, so they're really, you know, looking at fewer, you know, fewer deals. Um, you know, if, if we had taken a company to market, let's just say we had taken a, a hospice company to market in, in 2021. And, and for that particular company, I'm making numbers up again. You know, we had received 15 indications of interest. Uh, now we may only see nine or 10, um, but, but they're all still strong, right? So buyers have gotten more disciplined. The banks have gotten more, more stringent. Um, it's getting dip, more difficult to get bank approval on transactions um, if there's any kind of leverage put on it, regardless if it's a formal, you know, formal process or not. Uh, so banks are slowing transactions down a little bit. Uh, you know, they're asking a lot of questions that they weren't asking before. Uh, and it's all about risk management for them. So understandable. So I don't want to, to suggest that everything is, is perfect out there. There's a, been a lot of tailwinds that I've talked about that have driven the values up really high. But uh, but but buyers have gotten a lot more disciplined. Banks have gotten you know tighter uh, in their lending standards. Other headwinds, you know, if, if you look at each of the, let's just call it the, the, the three main sub-industries within the home-based care continuum, home health, home care, hospice. You know, in home health, we, you know, we just had the proposed rule, which, which proposed another permanent adjustment of, you know, north of 5.6%. Doesn't yet adjust the, address the temporary adjustment of, of recoup funds from the earlier years of PDGM, which is somewhere around 3.5 billion. That's kind of just hanging out there. Um, you know, that wasn't included in the proposed rule, but but it was mentioned, right? So it's kind of hanging out there. On the home care side, personal care side, if you look at really at home and community-based services, you know, we've got the proposed 80-20 rule now that, that CMS uh, proposed just a couple of months ago. You may have noticed on that day, Addis stock, you know, Addis does a lot of home and community-based services. They're not buying home and community-based services companies right now, at least not larger ones. They're really focused on, on others. But their stock, their stock dropped, right? Because investors panicked. They they thought it was going to change the industry. You know that has softened a little bit. I, I you know I, I think the consensus is that that's not going to um, pass the way it is currently, if at all. Uh, so out of stock has since rebounded, and and you know buyers are still buying. But you do have that rule out there. It's just hanging out. Uh, on the hospice side, you've got more you know increased scrutiny. Uh, you're getting effectively getting paid less, uh, you know, than, than you have been in the past couple of years. If you factor in the true wage inflation, uh, you know, so so all of these things are kind of they're not perpetual. They're all unique. But but there's always something hanging out there. You know, it's and these are the things that kind of keep the home based care multiples grounded. Um, you know, it's called stroke of the pen risk. But the agencies, you know, that that we come across uh, that have, as I mentioned before, you know, withstood all the changes over the last several years and are still making a profit, um, you know, are pretty well received in the marketplace. Yeah, as those regulatory changes proposed rule comes out, you know, everybody, you know, nobody's slamming on the brakes, but they're, they're taking their foot off their gas and saying, hey, what does this mean for us? Um, let, let us work our analysis, uh, do the financials, 
What's the impact? Um, are, are we more uh, a more sophisticated buyer? Are we strategic? Do, do we know do we know what we need to do to offset the these reimbursement challenges or added regulatory hoops? Or, you know, am I a, a seller that's saying, you know what? Enough is enough. I've gone through so much over the past couple of years. Now it's time for me to to, to pass on um, and 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 sell my business and start preparing my exit strategy for it. So I, I you know segueing into that, what do you say for those you know looking to exit in the next you know one to three years? What's what's the advice that you bring to them? And um, you know whether it's a pr- private equity looking to flip uh, uh, or a private ownership um, of it. What's your advice to them of things that they should be starting to look at and do? Yeah, so um, good good question. You know, pe- people talk about exit strategies all the time. And, and you mentioned you mentioned private equity and, and, you know, my advice to them would probably be a little bit different than, than an agency owner. But I think an agency owner can certainly learn a lot, you know, do what, what we say, do what the pros do, right? They can learn a lot from what private equity does uh, when they're planning their exit, because private equity plans their exits on every transaction they, they do. When they when they acquire a portfolio company, they've already developed their exit plan. Right, as soon as they, they buy, they're, they're thinking about selling, right? <laughs> and, and the key parts of that, right? So they have a number in mind, Right. They, and they don't know if they're going to hit that number or not. And they have kind of a date out there in mind, you know, okay, we're going to sell and, you know, we're going to grow this agency from, from 50 million in revenue to 300 million in revenue. And we're going to get there in three years and then we're going to sell. And that's what's, that's the exit plan, right? That's the main part of the exit plan. And that's something that, that owners can, can borrow from, right? Cause these guys, they make their living buying and selling companies, but really they make their living selling the companies there. They, that's where they make the money for their investors. And that's how they, they get rewarded is selling those companies. And, and a fundamental piece to that is having just those basic elements of an exit strategy. What is the, you know, when do we want to sell? And at what price do we, we call it the magic number. At what price do we want to sell? Granted, it's just a target. And it's probably going to change and it, and it probably will change. And, and it's something that we recommend just like private equity, private equity revisits that every quarter, they, they, every quarter, you know, what's our new sell date. And I mean, they, they talk about that every quarter don't necessarily need to do it that often, although it's a good practice. Um, but the other part of that is figuring out what the company is worth today, right? So you figured out, you know, I want to sell in three years. Uh, I want $15 million for my agency. Uh, what's it worth today? Okay, right now it's worth $6 million. You know, we've got some work to do, right? What's the plan? How do we get from $6 million to $15 million? And then you kind of develop a plan there. And that's, if you can do those things, um, you know, it's, it's going to give you a much greater chance of a successful exit. Thank you. That's very helpful in sharing and, you know, just thinking about it from, you know, providers that are listening or just those that are very interested in the merger and acquisition space and activity. It's always helpful to have this on the forefront, depending on if it's something that your organization may be looking at today or, you know, or perhaps in the future that they're working somewhere that they may need to be developing an exit strategy or uh, maybe a part of a process. 
us um, on both either the the buy or sell side. So it's always good having um, some some of those nuggets for our listeners on what what to be thinking about and how to be planning ahead. And Corey, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today to share your knowledge, your expertise about your firm and all these insights on mergers and acquisitions as as we gear up for the, the second half of 2023. There's going to be much more activity, probably some more unknowns, um, but really, truly appreciate you taking the time to join me on today's podcast. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of the McBee Care Threads podcast. At McBee, we understand the challenges providers face across the healthcare landscape. For more than 45 years, we've been a part of the evolution of the healthcare industry. Our strategic advisory solutions span the home health, hospice, health system, and senior living care continuums, creating improved clinical, financial, and operational outcomes. Our expertise is guaranteed. Our solutions empower. Visit us today at mcbeeassociates.com. Thank you for listening to McBee Care Threads. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. For more information on the topics discussed today, visit our website at mcbeeassociates.com. Until next time.